We can turn away from your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. This is what we'll look at this morning. Striving to preach the mystery will be the title. Uh, we're going to redo verse 24 through 29, but I will read to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 5 to set the context. So Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and every and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that the hearts uh, may be encouraged, being knit, knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful again for the work of Christ. Thank you for his suffering. Thank you that he learned obedience through his suffering. Thank you that he died as that perfect sacrifice for us. And thank you that he was raised as the firstborn of new creation. And thank you, O oh God, that his work is sufficient, that Christ's work is sufficient. He is the one who has reconciled enemies uh, through the body of his, uh, through death in the body of his flesh. And so we're thankful, O oh God, for his completed and finished work. And we're thankful, O oh God, based upon what he has done, he continues to work, to call forth sinners, to bring his people in. And we're thankful, O oh God, he does that through his body, namely the church. And so we're thankful, O oh God, the kingdom advances. We're thankful for the word of God that does go forth. We're thankful that the word of God does save. The word of God does cause your people to grow. Please forgive us, O oh God, for ever thinking anything else would make us grow. Forgive us, O oh God, for being absent from the preaching. Please forgive us, O oh God, for not praying. Please forgive us, O oh God, for not reading your word. Please, O oh God, forgive us for seeking experience rather than the promises that you've given us in the scriptures. Thank you for the knowledge of God. Thank you for the knowledge of Christ. And thank you for the knowledge that we are sinful and there is a great Savior. And we're thankful that your kingdom does advance and many suffer for this cause. And so may we appreciate and see that Christ is with us. Christ is sympathetic to us. Christ, uh, uh, we are united to our Christ. And may this give us comfort when our feelings and flesh may fail. May we set our eyes uh, upon Christ and have faith in him who is our king. So be with us now, we pray. Lift us up by your spirit. Strengthen your saints, we pray. Give us strength when we suffer and give us diligence in your word. And if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them, O oh God, by your power and by your word. And we pray, O oh God, in all things, you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I have a bit of a confession to make. 
When it comes to my task as a preacher, I understand I must preach the word of God and be ready in season and out of season. But my confession is sometimes when I see the world and see other churches do certain things, I can't deny sometimes it weighs upon me what other people do. People come into our church and say, you don't have this, you don't have that, you don't do these things. And eventually, sometimes, because I'm not a disembodied spirit, sometimes I think, well, maybe we should do those sorts of things. Sometimes it wears on me more than I would like to admit. Because the sad reality is many people don't want what we have. Many people don't want suffering and saving Christ, but a self-help Christ, or worse, they don't want Jesus at all, but want practical tips for life on earth. And sometimes when people leave, sometimes when people criticize, it can be discouraging uh, for one like me. That's why I need a daily reminder of what my task is. I need to always be focused on what God has called me to do. To preach Christ is the task of the church. To preach the word of God is the task of the preacher. And I will always need Christ when I do that. We will always need Christ when we gather together. And as we preach Christ, there is that reality. It may come at a cost. Now, Paul himself certainly understood that cost, but he was willing to strive. He was, God called him to be a minister, but he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And certainly he is suffering as he writes the book of Colossians. He is in prison during his first imprisonment in Rome. We see that in Acts chapter 28. He is suffering for the cause of Christ. And as he is sitting in Rome, he's probably with Epaphras, who was the founder, perhaps, of the Colossian church. And he report, or Epaphras reports, here's all the good things that they're doing, but there's a threat. And so Paul writes to encourage them. Paul writes to remind them of their faith, hope, and love but also to warn them against heresy, to warn them against these men who are not appointed. And so he writes as a minister of the gospel and engages in that muscle flex, figuratively speaking, he has been set apart. And so verses 24 all the way to chapter 2-5 is a continuation of that muscle flex. Here's what God has called me to do, and here is what a minister must do, and here is the suffering that a minister must endure. And so the problem really is one who does not proclaim Christ, and unfortunately a sub-problem with that, are men who have not been appointed to proclaim Christ. Usually men who are not appointed to proclaim Christ don't even preach Christ at all. And certainly that was a problem with Colossae. There are heretics there who said, you don't need Christ. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need any sort of other thing that we say that then you might have communion with God. We figured out the formula. We figured out the secret. We figured out the way. And it's not in Christ, but in what we have to say. Just follow my rules and everything will be right. And again, sometimes there is that problem in modern churches as well. I'm not denying there, the, that we're not a perfect church, but I believe what God has said and called us to do. I cling to that. But we ha- it's, it's not wrong to compare with what's going on in other places. And there are problems in other churches when ministers can't preach and ministers don't preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem is modern churches like to ask, what does the world want? What do people want? What do you guys want? I'm not going to ask that question, by the way. I'm going to ask, what does Christ say? What does God say? And if we enter into God's house, should we not ask God what he wants in his house? And he says we must proclaim him. That's exactly what Paul does. He has a joy and a delight to proclaim Christ, even if it leads to suffering. And that's what he says in verses 24 through 29. He elaborates the joy of his suffering 
It's because of his ministry to preach. He's called to preach. He's been uh, set apart as a manager, as an apostle. That might lead to suffering, but he's willing to suffer because of the truth. He's willing to endure because of the gospel that goes forth. He's willing to suffer for the sake of the church. Now, certainly this applies to Paul as an apostle, but certainly there is application to local churches and pastors as well. And so we'll look at this idea of Paul suffering, the idea of Paul's ministry under two headings this morning. First of all, the minister who suffers, verses 24 through 26. Then secondly, the minister who proclaims, verses 27 through 29. So the minister who suffers, verses 24 through 26. And secondly, the minister who proclaims, verses 27 through 29. Let's first look at the minister who suffers in verses 24 through 26. Now, notice we see in verse 24, his sufferings for Christ and Christ's body. Now, the context here, again, is Paul defending his ministry. Chapter, the end of chapter 1 is Paul's ministry in general, what God has called him to do. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is Paul's ministry in particular, namely to the Colossian church. We've already seen him do this. We saw him highlight who God is, who Jesus is, who Christ is. We saw him highlight his universal reconciliation, and then he applies it to the Colossian church. Well, he's doing the same thing here. He's saying, here's what my ministry is, and then here is my ministry to you, which is the same of what my ministry is. And so he goes on to then uh, unpack what that means. Paul has been set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. We see this in Acts 2. Acts 22 and Acts chapter 26. So he's elaborating on this when he says in verse 24, I now, he said in verse 23, I, Paul, became a minister, and I now going to unpack what that means. And notice he starts by his joy in the midst of suffering. Now, he's not calling for us to be masochists and go looking for pain, but what he's highlighting here is when one preaches the gospel, it's going to lead to suffering. And what he is saying here is, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to go through pain and sorrow for the good and benefit and blessing of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows where his joy lies. It's in Jesus. And he knows where the power of God lies, namely in the word, as it goes forth. So perhaps it's twofold when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Personally, that is, if one endures suffering and one stands, there's a great assurance and affirmation one is Christ's, right? Again, I'm not saying we go looking for suffering, but when we endure suffering and when we stand in the midst of suffering, that's a great assurance. And we count it a joy that we are redeemed and saved. But also a more uh, uh, ecclesiastical application, it's for the benefit of the church. I'm suffering for the benefit of the church. I'm striving for the benefit of the church for whom I suffer. Now, when we define suffering, it can be certainly just general suffering, sin and the effects of sin. Doesn't even have to refer to persecution, but persecution certainly is a form or one way in which one suffers. I think all of that is in view here. Certainly he is suffering by way of persecution in Rome. Paul has suffered many types of sufferings. He gives a laundry list in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11. And what's interesting, too, is in 2 Corinthians, he's defending his ministry. What he's doing in 2 Corinthians is there were people who said, Paul, you're not an apostle. And why you're not an apostle, Paul? It's because you suffer. 
He sounds just like a, a modern day Pentecostal sometimes, doesn't he? Oh, you, you're going through hardship. That must not be from God. Well, Paul is saying that his apostleship or his suffering is a sign of his apostleship. So you can kind of see Paul's emotion, actually, in 2 Corinthians. Even in 2 Timothy, there were people who ridiculed him, didn't want to be identified with him in his imprisonment. So Paul doesn't just suffer from, you know, pagans. He suffers at the hands of Christians as well. That's unfortunate, isn't it? We Christians can cause other Christians to suffer in some ways by our insensitivity, by our arrogance, and by our sinfulness. Well, thanks be to God for Christ who forgives us of all our sins. But he rejoices in his sufferings, for it is the benefit and the advancement of the church. He suffers as he speaks the truth for the benefit of Christ. And so he says that, I rejoice in my sufferings for you specifically, the church at Colossae, for you, for your edification and the confirmation of the truth. So he gives a specific, I suffer for you, but also again gives a general, I suffer for the church, uh, verse 24. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, perhaps you've read that before and you're like, what in the world is Paul trying to say here with that language? Is Paul saying that Christ's suffering is not sufficient? The answer to that question is no, that's not what he's saying. I think some writers distinguish between Christ's personal sufferings and Christ's sympathetic sufferings. When Christ goes to die on Calvary, it is sufficient. It is complete. It is finished. But how he advances his gospel to the ends of the earth is through his body, his church. And just as the master has suffered, so too will his people suffer. That's probably the indication here. Christ in his personal suffering is the Lord of creation. He is the son who learned obedience. What that means is he experienced, directly experienced that obedience brings suffering. When we do what God says, it's going to bring ridicule. When we do what God says, it may bring persecution. When we do what God says, it might bring pain. But Christ has said, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And as we walk in this world, as we deal with those tribulations, Christ's work is always sufficient. Christ's work is always right. Christ's work is always sufficient. He came to die. He died through suffering. His atoning work is sufficient in his human nature. And certainly we saw that in verses 19 through 23. The one thing that ought to be encouragement is not just that the one suffered personally, Christ, but he suffers with us now. He knows our pain. He knows our sorrow. And when it says here that he fills up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, he's not saying we're adding to the atonement of Christ. What he is saying here is that Christ is with us in that suffering. His body, his spiritual body, his church suffers. Christ still works, even though his church suffers. Just as the master suffers, so too will his body suffer as well. There's that body head relationship. Certainly, we've already seen that in chapter 118. He's the head of the body, the church. That is, he's, uh, he goes before the church, the, well, the one who is raised from the dead. But also, he is the one who helps his church in the midst of sorrow and pain. He is the one who is sympathetic to his church in the midst of hardship. And we see that language in Acts 9. 
When Jesus appears to Paul, who is suffering, who is persecuting the church, what does Jesus say? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus knows our suffering. Jesus knows our pain. Jesus knows our sorrow. And it is for our good as he leads us to that celestial city. I think Edie is right when he says he declares his oneness with his people, that he lives in them, endures in them the pangs of hunger and thirst, and in them is fed and refreshed, is shut up when they are imprisoned and welcomes the step of benevolence, is conscious with them when they are in a foreign land of the desolation and solitude of a stranger, and is thankful for the shelter and fellowship of hospitality. He feels the shame of their nakedness when they are bereft of clothing and accepts with joy the proffered gift of a compassionate friend. He suffers in them in their sickness and enjoys a kind look and deed. And so certainly that idea of afflictions of Christ is explained for the sake of his body, which is the church. Christ still works. Christ continues to do his work according to Acts chapter 1. Christ continues, even though he reigns, we don't see him at this time. Christ continues to work, and he brings that working through his church. And Paul is willing to sacrifice for his Lord and sacrifice for the good of the kingdom. And so he suffers for the church. And notice we see in verses 25 and 26 why he suffers. Suffering as a minister of the word. Notice in verse 25, Paul highlights, he has been appointed, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. On that day in Acts 9, Paul was commissioned by the risen Lord to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, when we consider the apostleship or the office of apostle, uh, it no longer is in effect today. An office of, an, of the apostle was one A who saw the risen Lord Jesus uh, uh, that's the key thing. One who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly Paul sees that Paul is set apart with that. And we see the qualifications in Acts chapter one, certainly their authority still remains here, but they were offices of what we call the universal church. There are local churches, right? Surrey is a local church. Colossae is a local church, but that is an expression of the universal church. All of God's true people uh, who are saved in him. And so Paul is an apostle to the universal church, which sometimes includes ministering to local churches, like he's doing here with this letter. And so Paul is saying to them, I have been appointed. They have not. I have been set apart. They might use persuasive words, but God has saved me and set me apart to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the language there. A minister, which goes with verse 23, but according to the stewardship from God. Now, that language of stewardship carries the idea of household. And so the implication is one who is a steward is one who manages the house of another. So the implication is the church is the household of God, and God has set apart men to be his managers in that church. He appoints, he vets, he sets them apart. It's according to God's appointed ways. And certainly for a pastor, we see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And certainly God appoints men to do what God has said, namely preach God's word. Not puppets, not ponies, not programs, not self-help, not 10 ways on how to live a better life. No, preach 
Christ. Because these guys were saying, here's 10 ways in how to live a better life, mainly for the acceptance of being uh, or the, her- the heretics. Uh, I call us say, do all these things and you'll find acceptance. Paul's saying, no, it's in Christ. No, it's in him. Don't turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul specifically was set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles to bring about God's plan to bring the Gentiles in. And I think there's more going on here than just Paul muscle flexing. He is conscious of his role in redemptive history. What I mean by that is Paul understood that his apostleship was set apart for a purpose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which God promised in the prophets. These men were not appointed. These heretics were not appointed. These heretics were self-appointed, and there's nothing worse than a self-appointed man thinking he can preach. I'm sure there are some things worse than that, but you know what I'm saying. A man who thinks they could preach, goes around, never joined a church, never did anything, but goes around trying to poach people. That's just not right. There's nothing worse than that, to be honest with you. We need vetted and appointed men, and Paul was that, and Paul was appointed for a specific reason. And we see that at the end of verse 25 in order to fulfill the word of God. Now, this could refer to preaching, which he certainly does in verse 28, but perhaps the word fulfill is a little more eschatological, a little more fulfillment type language, like the prophets had said. The prophets had said that there would be one people, and I know Pastor Butler hammered that home last Lord's Day evening how there we are one Jew and Gentile in the Lord Jesus Christ. One becomes part of the people of God, not by ethnicity, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was the key apostle to bring that about. So when God sets apart Paul, he's bringing in the kingdom or fulfilling prophecy by the work of Paul. And I think Paul was conscious of that. Paul in other places said, if they don't listen to what I have to say, don't, don't listen to, uh, you know, deal with them. Paul was aware of his message. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, the third of the three times he recounts, or I guess the second time he recounts, but the third time his conversion is mentioned in the book, he says, verse 22 of Acts 26, therefore having obtained help from God to this day, I stand. Witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He understood he was fulfilling prophecy, that in him the Gentiles would be brought in. And this is further unpacked for us with the language of mystery in verse 26 as he says the word of god the mystery which was hidden from the ages and from generations but now is revealed in him or in christ but now is revealed to the saints and the way in which paul or god does that is through paul to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth now let's back up for a second and consider that word mystery The mystery carries the idea that something was once hidden. I mean, it's mysterious, right? 
And he unpacks what that means there for us, which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But now, something that was once in darkness has now been revealed by light. Something that once was just a drip or a drop is now a roaring river. Something that just was once a spark is now a raging fire. That's how we think of the Old and the New Testament, right? The New is in the Old, concealed. The Old is in the New, revealed. The Old Testament saints, they wouldn't have understood everything, but they clung or they believed upon the promises to come that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. When they saw the sacrifice, they knew something else would be coming. Or when they heard the messianic prophecies, they were awaiting, but they didn't see it in its fullness. And that's why they needed Christ to come. That's why we need the but nows in the Bible, right? There's the now in verse 24, which I think is just transitioning from or to elaborate what he said. But there is the charged word of the but now in verse 26. But now has been revealed. The mystery is Christ, is it not? Christ in the gospel and Christ in the gospel brings together Jew and Gentile. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul was set apart for this purpose, according to the plan of God, to bring Jew and Gentile together in that plan of God, according to God's eternal purpose. The Old Testament didn't quite fully grasp it, although there were certainly hints of it, right, with Rahab and Naaman and many others as well. But, and Ruth, certainly a Moabite, there were hints of these hints of the Gentiles coming in, but now it's fully come in. Now it's fully here. That salvation is not based on ethnicity, but it's based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was God's plan that in him, he would reconcile all things. God's plan and the mystery is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he does. That's why in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to pagans and Gentiles, he uses, first of all, natural law. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. God passed over the former ways. But now you can no longer. Now, no, you can't now no longer plead ignorance, not as though they were going to be saved, but you can now no longer plead ignorance because the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. And salvation is in the Son of Man, namely Jesus Christ. And so Paul was set apart to bring, to fulfill the word of God promised, but to fulfill the word of God by preaching the word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery now revealed. The mystery now revealed, notice, to his saints, to his set apart ones, to his elect, to his church, whom God calls forth out of darkness. We were once children of wrath, but now we are, chill, we, are where we are brought into the kingdom of the son of his love. We were once under the kingdom of darkness. Now we are in the kingdom of the son of his love through preaching. Someone told you you were a wretch. Someone told you you were awful. Or you read it in the Bible how awful you are. I and mean, that's how I got saved, by the way. I was reading Leviticus and how awful I was reading that. You know, it just, the law just heaps up all these things upon us and weighs us down. That's its point. The law, the law is meant to lay us down. Here's how you don't fulfill it. Here's how you violate it, how you violate all those commandments. Yet in Christ, there's mercy. We need to see the law and see our sinfulness that we might see Christ who is sinless and believe upon him. We need the bad news for wretches that we might appreciate the good news that there is forgiveness and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his saints whom God 
saves and calls out of darkness into marvelous light. So Paul was aware of his ministry and what his ministry meant in redemptive history and also the sufferings he endured for that truth. Now, the application, I think, is hopefully fairly clear. We're going to suffer. I know we don't like to talk about that a lot, but we are going to suffer in this world for the truth. And again, there's that general aspect, sin and the effects of sin. But brethren, we suffer as God's people. We, 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 we get saved. God changes us. And perhaps our family members aren't saved. That's going to create some tension, isn't it, in that relationship? Even perhaps depending on what job one has, one might lose their salvation potentially, or not lose their salvation, lose their job potentially. Uh, yeah, please, I did not say you could lose your salvation. I meant lose your job. I just want to say that for everybody in the back and for everybody who might misunderstand it. Take that clip and take it out of context. That's not what I meant. Um, and we're going to suffer sometimes mixing our words and memory loss and all those sorts of things. Uh, but there's suffering. We live in a fallen world and God's people will suffer. I know unbelievers suffer too. I understand that. But God's people will suffer for the truth. And I think the specific application is the church, local and universal, when we do what God says, you know, God does bring growth. God brings salvation. We believe that. But there's also going to be ridicule and there's going to be suffering. I mean, this is the point of the book of Revelation, I think. God's people suffer, but there is Christ who reigns supreme. I mean, John says in John or Revelation 1.9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. As we await for him, there's going to be tribulation. There's going to be Nero's of the world. And even too, in Revelation 6, the fifth seal, the cry, I, 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 know, I know there's a lot of differing views. I believe the seal, the trumpet, and the bowls are referring to the same, thing, or the same event from different angles. Just the time between Christ's first and second coming. And what's one marker of the present evil age? God's people are going to suffer. God's people are going to be martyred. So he says, he opens that seal. And then in verse 11, he says, then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be sadness. I mean, we read this morning of a pastor in India beaten, beaten to near death. He's prima, they think he's going to die as a kid who's two, seven, and 13, beaten to death for his faith, for his, uh, for his Christ. I mean, we read Voice of the Martyrs every week. For that very reason, people have suffered. And apparently, too, there is the stat that says there is more bloodshed by Christians uh, in the the 20th century more than the first 19 combined. There is sadness and sorrow and bloodshed in this world against Christians. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times Christians have engaged in bloodshed. I'm not denying that. But Christians, for the most part, are the ones who are persecuted for their faith. And so the church shall be persecuted, but ministers too. I mean, if a minister just preaches Christ, people are like, oh, they face ridicule. What do you mean you don't have all these other things for us? Or perhaps when you call sinners the sinful, I mean, nobody likes to hear they're sinful, right? We're, we're good at telling everybody else they're sinful. We're just never good at hearing that we're sinful, right? We're never good at hearing our problems and hearing where we're wrong. We're, we're good at pointing everything. Sometimes the preacher has to say, you're wrong and you're sinful. 
Just like you have to say to me, sometimes, pastor, you're wrong and you're sinful. And you'd be right. I am wrong and I'm sinful. But doing so might bring suffering, might bring imprisonment. Or perhaps wanting to gather for church might bring the authorities to come in, might bring financial ruin, might bring all sorts of sufferings. I mean, man is desperately wicked. They can think of many ways to bring about pain and suffering. They, they really can. Or perhaps sometimes the pain and heartache of how people treat ministers. That goes, again, with what happened to Paul in 2 Corinthians. Sometimes the people of God treat ministers worse than pagans. That's a sad thing, isn't it? You know, ministers are called to set apart, are set apart to preach God's word. Not everybody's going to like that. And sometimes they're not going to leave quietly. They're going to create problems in the church. And sometimes a lot of sorrow and heartache comes from the people of God. And when you consider, if you give the world what it wants, will you really suffer? If you give the world what it desires, are you really going to suffer? Paul kind of says that in Galatians 6. Well, they're not suffering because they didn't preach Christ. We're going to suffer for the truth, dear brother. And may God give us strength to endure whatever suffering we must for it, and especially ministers. So I need to count the cost. I need to understand that. I need God's grace and mercy to stand in those moments. So a minister who suffers. Let's then look secondly at the minister who proclaims, verses 27 through 29 continues to unpack how that mystery is revealed. It is God who reveals that mystery. It is God. And this is where we see, again, that bringing of Jew and Gentile more explicitly than verse 26. It is explicit in Ephesians 2 and 3. Verse 27, to them, God willed. It is God's will to make known. It is God who makes known. It is God who changes. It is God who shows. And uh, what he's going to say here is that God brings in Gentiles. What's interesting too is there's a lot of knowledge language in the whole book, but in this section as well. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Why does he say that? Because the heretics were saying they had knowledge and wisdom and understanding, but knowledge and wisdom and understanding comes from God in his word, not from some guy who had a dream somewhere sometime or who had an idea and they finally had this esoteric idea and they go, that's not where one finds knowledge. One finds knowledge in God's word. That's why we need to set our mind on the things that are above, on the things of God. That's where we know him. And so again, he's giving these digs against these self-appointed men. You might, you might think, you know, but here's what one ought to know. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That is the, the, the radiance the, the, the beneficence, the, 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 the goodness of God, that it's not, again, just for Jew, but for Gentile, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Gentiles who were once in darkness, Gentiles who are pagans, there is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does God make it known? We're going to see that in verse 28, but it is through his word. And it is through the king who brings in his kingdom. Now, what's interesting is there is a possible allusion to Daniel chapter 2. So you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Beale points this out. There are, there's quite a, a lot of the language we see in Colossians, we see in Daniel 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. 
he doesn't know what that dream means, so he needs someone to interpret that dream. And here comes Daniel, the man of God. So Daniel says in Daniel 9.20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Daniel is willing to serve Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, but he's not but he's, uh, he's willing to help him there, but he also does so by highlighting it is God who gives Daniel wisdom. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. One thing that's interesting about Daniel, you know what it's about? Kingship. Who is the king? And Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the king, but God has got a dream for him. God has got an idea for him. God has got another word for him. And so Daniel unpacks what his dream meant. And what his dream refers to are four kingdoms. So we see in verses 28 and 30, a lot of that mystery language. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, who has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of what you have your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he reveals secrets as made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. For our sakes who make known the interpretation of the king, that you may know the heart, the thoughts of your heart. There's a lot of language of the word for mystery is used there. And what he reveals there are four kingdoms right? There's going to be four kingdoms, but there is going to be one who is over all those kingdoms, right? Certainly after Nebuchadnezzar, there would be the Persians. And after the Persians, there would be the Greeks. And after the Greeks, there would be the Romans, right? And this comes up a lot in the book of Daniel. But there's one who's over all of them. Verse 40, uh, sorry, verse, um, uh, where is it? Oh yeah, verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And so the mystery of God is the revelation of the kingdom of God and the one who is the true king. Even though there are these mighty kings, you will see Nebuchadnezzar after you. Even though there's these mighty kings, you will see Israel after you. There is one king over and above all. And brethren, that should give us comfort, right? When there are tyrants in this world, there is one who is king over all. That's why we read Daniel 7, the one who has come to the ancient of days. Christ, even though we do not see him, reigns. And he reigns supreme. And the way in which he brings in his kingdom is through the church. And how often in history, dear brethren, have there been nations that have risen and fallen and the church still advances? How often has there been in history tyrants who sought to take out the church, but in trying to do so only advanced the church? For the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That ought to give us comfort, dear brethren. And perhaps what Paul is trying to say here, uh, I mean, maybe Paul's understanding that, but certainly the language of God that he gives us in his word, old and new, certainly brings that together. He is the one who is bringing in his kingdom, and in his kingdom, we have communion with him. The mystery has been revealed 
don't go search for these other things. It is found in him. And what are the riches, the benevolence, the riches that far outweigh anything we could ever imagine in this world? And he goes on to say what those riches are in verse 9, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The richness of our lives, brethren, is Christ. For our sakes, he became poor that we might become rich. And who makes us rich? And in whom are we rich? It's in Jesus Christ. And should we suffer loss? Should we suffer sadness? I'm not belittling the sadness we might go through and will go through. We have riches in Christ. We have riches in Christ now. Don't go away from him. We have rich and we shall have riches with Christ forever, world without end. That's why he says the hope of glory. Christ in you, who is in us now, and it's in Christ that we are kept. In Christ we walk. He'll say that in verses 6 and 7. But also what we shall have when he comes again. I mean, that's why Paul often speaks of the down payment of the inheritance that awaits God's people. That's why he talks about the hope that we have. He's already mentioned hope a lot in this, in this book already. The hope that keeps us grounded, Christ in us, the riches that await. So we suffer a little bit, but the riches await. Even should we suffer a little bit in this world. It is the riches of the gospel. It is the riches of Christ. He is our hope. Edie had a very long section describing what glory would look like. I could not read it all for you, but it was very heartwarming. I'll read some of it. He talks about the spirit and the body. He talks about how Jesus is the son of righteousness. In him, we shall be warmed uh, when he comes again. But just some excerpts. He says, the spirit in its present feebleness would bow and faint beneath the pressure of it, glory. They might die in delirious agony. But then, when you are resurrected and have conformed bodies, he says, then it shall have a power and stateliness, not only to bear, but to enjoy the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He goes on to say, the body too shall be raised, an ethereal vehicle, no longer the prey of disease, languor, and death, but clothed in immortal youth and vigor, and so assimilated to the blessed spirit within it, as neither to cramp its movement or confine its energies. No pain, no throbbing, no tear on the cheek, no sepulcher. Now Christ is the hope of glory. And we don't fully grasp what glory shall look like, but we know that it shall be far greater than anything we endure and deal with in this world. And the reason being is the sun shines as the sun in the new Jerusalem. Christ is our hope now, and Christ shall be our sun when we arrive in the new heavens and the new earth. It is a great mystery, but a great and blessed encouragement for the people of God. God reveals this to us. And notice how he does that. Verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim. That's the goal of the church. Him we proclaim. And Paul does this in Acts. He preaches to the ends of the earth. And when he's on his dying day in 2 Timothy, he says, preach the word because you realize there are eternal ramifications of the message, right? Here's the gospel of free and sovereign grace. If you believe upon it, you shall be saved. Unless you believe I am, you shall die in your trespasses and sins. 
What's interesting is in 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I charge you before God and Jesus Christ, who will come and judge the living and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom. That is, there's judgment type emphasis and judgment type uh, judgment type aspect when it comes to the preaching. If one does not believe in Christ, they do not go to the judgment clothed in Christ, but covered in their own sin. So if you don't believe this message today and you're not in Christ, that shall be you. But the other side is, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall go to the judgment clothed in him and not guilty. You see, the message is of eternal importance. Believe on Jesus, believe the gospel, you shall have everlasting life and be with him in the new heavens and new earth. If you do not, you shall die in your trespasses and sins forever. That's why the message is so important. Not puppets, not ponies, not programs, but Christ. And as we're going to see for the people of God, how does he present us? How does he prepare us? How do we grow in him? It is through his word. A lot of people come in. You don't, you don't have a Sunday school. You know what my now response is going to be to them? And I kid you not. What's a Sunday school? People need to ask that question. We all assume we know what a Sunday school is. But let's ask ourselves that question for a second. What's a Sunday school? Or perhaps when did Sunday school appear and why? 1750s for the purposes of teaching children who couldn't go to school during the week because they were poor, math, writing. It's exactly how it sounds, right? A Sunday school. And I'm not necessarily against education and Sunday school hour per se, but not in lieu of the gathered corporate worship. People need to be in worship. Kids need to be in worship. But I'm going to ask that question now. And they're probably looking at me like I'm stupid. Do, do, do you really not know what a Sunday school is there, Michael? I do. But do you really know? But do you really know what a Sunday school is there, whoever I'm talking to? You see, we always want everything but Jesus Christ. We always want everything but him. We want everything rather than our Lord. But the task of the church is to warn the task of the church is to teach. The task of the church is to present every man. Notice in verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So there's a warning aspect when there's heresy, people might stray from Christ. I know I sound like a broken record when I say you need to be in church, we need to be under the word, but Paul says that a lot in his word because we so easily stray from the word. So if I sound like a broken record, we probably need to hear it over and over again. It's, I sound like a broken record because it keeps coming up uh, in the things we proclaim. And so we must be warned when there's heresy. But also we must teach with all wisdom how we live, how we operate, who we are in. That's important. Teaching and warning are part of the message. And notice the purpose. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And notice he said every man a bunch of times, right? Jew and Gentile. And what he's saying here is that you don't need some sort of esoteric experience, but in every man teach, every man warn, every man that is Jew and Gentile can be presented. I know there's some things that are hard in the Bible, but the basics are pretty clear. God is the creator. We are the creature. 
We've sinned against the creator. We need a savior. Here's that savior. Believe on him. If you do life, if you don't, you'll die and trespass. I mean, that that's pretty clear, right? Now we need God's grace and mercy power. We see how he saves people through that, but that is very clear. And so he's saying here, we teach every man and the purpose is that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And this goes with verse 22. Jesus is going to present us perfect. How does he present us perfect? In the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren. That's how he presents us perfect through the preaching of the word. Brethren, as we walk this world and as we come out of the world, the church is like an embassy. The church is like our home. And we must come and be reminded of our heaven and our home, right? We must come and be reminded, prepared for the heavens that await. That's why church gatherings are so vital for us. It is for our growth. It's for our maturity. It's so that we don't carry, get carried about by to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4, right? That's why he set apart men for that very purpose, that, they, that we might not be carried out to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He prepares us through his word and through the church present every man perfect in Christ. And notice verse 29. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me mightily. Preaching, praying, people. It's hard work, isn't it? Suffering. It's hard to go through. Nobody's denying that. Mining the word of God requires prayer and requires thought and notice where one's strength lies it, restri- it lies with the preacher or lies in god sorry who gives power to the preacher to this end i also labor striving according to his work which works in me mightily he still must labor but he labors in the might and power of god and what's interesting is that we grow according to god's might and the preacher preaches according to god's might And God is pleased to work in his people through the preacher whom God has called as he works mightily in the preacher that he might work mightily in you. And that's why, brethren, I do believe there is power in the pulpit, right? And there's power in the pulpit. There's power in the word of God, not because of the eloquence of the preacher, but because of the power of God in his word. And brethren, I sometimes ask myself, do people really believe that this is the word of God? Do we really believe that God actually still speaks and God actually still speaks in this way? I must confess, I know I have my problems and I, you know, sometimes have those thoughts that I said at the beginning, but a lot of the times the Lord God reminds me, I cannot but preach his word. And the reason being is because this is where the power lies, not in me, but in him and in what he's called me to do, which is his word. And if we believe that God still speaks in his word, I believe he will do mighty things with his word as it goes forth. If we are faithful, we must not look to the world, but we must be faithful as managers and stewards of God's kingdom. So we proclaim the truth. And the reason we proclaim the truth is because the message really does save, doesn't it? The message really works. The message really saves. 
You are a wretch and there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he draws forth sinners. That's why it's irresistible grace. God calling sinners out of darkness to believe upon him. God really does do that. And so we must preach on Christ. Now, the church, certainly as we gather, is primarily for believers, but unbelievers are welcome to come in that they might hear the message and be saved. Hear the gospel of free and sovereign grace in Jesus and be saved. And if you're an unbeliever here today, this message is true. Jesus did live, die, and rise again. And if you believe upon him, you shall be saved. You shall find forgiveness, and you shall have the promise of everlasting life. Believe upon him, and you shall be saved. And this message must be proclaimed regardless of the suffering we face. Davenant says, unless its doctrines were true and saving, he would never undergo such numberless inconveniences for the proclamation of it. It's because God really saves in it. But also as well, the proclamation of truth is for the growth of God's people. In verse 9, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He unpacks what that means. Brethren, how then do we grow? Well, there's a lot of similar language in verses 24 through 29 by being under the preaching of God's word. Brethren, I understand if we're providentially hindered. I get that. I understand if something happens, we're sick, etc. I get that. But if we are absenting ourselves because we're lazy, we need to ask God for mercy and forgiveness. If we're absenting ourselves from something that does not providentially hinder, we need to ask God for forgiveness because we're not doing ourselves any favors. Preachers must be willing to suffer for the message, but God's people must be willing to suffer to get up early to get to church. I know we're tired, brethren. I get that. I'm tired. You're tired. We're all tired. Newsflash, we're all tired. I get it. And we must still get up, drag our rear ends into that church. You know what God is pleased to do? He's pleased to meet us there, isn't he? And he's pleased to encourage us when we're tired and weary. We don't want to go. Mike's going to go on till, you know, an hour and 15 today. I mean, my goodness. Oh, oh, I have to stay. No, God then speaks to us, doesn't he? God is gracious and God is good. And we need to drag ourselves to be under what we need. The people say they'll die for Christ, but will they live for him now? Pastor Butler said that. People are saying, oh, I'm going to die for Yeah, but will you live for him now and be faithful in the things that God has called you to now? Because if you're not, I surmise you might not die for Christ because most of the times we are fearful. Now, God is still good. And he still helps us in those moments. I know there are things, it's not always quite that cause and effect, but the point is we should be willing to live for Christ our Lord now. And that's where we grow in maturity. Suffering helps us grow in maturity, but there is comfort. Suffering is part of the, this life and part of the church, but glory awaits. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4? He says... The sufferings of this present evil age, I'm amalgamating them. The sufferings of this present age do not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits God's people. If you believe on Christ, you will suffer. But the blessedness and the, uh, of knowing him and the momentary light affliction we endure in this world does not compare. Knowing Christ 
knowing the riches in him far outweigh any suffering we might endure in this world. He is everything. He is all. In him is the hope of glory. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for your patience, for your love, and for your graciousness towards us day by day. Thank you, O God, that you, in your blessed plan of redemption, uh, your promise, your plans, your purposes, uh, your eternal purpose included the salvation of Gentiles, uh, not just Jews, but Gentiles through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, O God, that there are many Gentiles here in this church, that we've believed upon him, that we've looked to him, that there is mercy and forgiveness in him. Uh, We pray, O God, that we would cling to Christ always, that we would be willing to suffer and endure for the sake uh, of the gospel. Thank you for the mission. Thank you for the church that it does advance. We pray, O God, that we would uh, be faithful. So often, O God, it's easy to think of other things, easy to think about what the world wants, but may you remind us in your word of what the task of the church is. Please forgive us for our failures. Please forgive us for uh, the ways in which we have sinned. Please forgive us, O God. And thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we pray, O God, that the the truth would help us to grow. We pray, O God, that the truth would save. Thank you, O God, that you do speak in your word. And you still speak in your word, for your word is living. And it is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So, God, may we set our eyes upon you day by day. And when we are forgetful, may we find forgiveness in you. May you remind us once again of how much we need you day by day. So we pray, O God, we would be diligent, that we would strive, that we would work hard to, to, to gather as the saints, as your people, to gather with one another that you might speak to us in your word. Thank you, Christ, that you speak. Thank you, Christ, that you work. And may we rejoice as we suffer. May we rejoice as we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. And thank you, O Christ, that you are with us when we do so. And thank you for the promise of glory that awaits. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.